lecture, as you can see behind me. So today's lecture is part of a series to give you a taster of the academic activities that UCLIST will encompass. And one of the most exciting spaces uh, that we are planning to have on the new campus is an urban room. And so today's lecture will be enlightening to understand what it is and how we can engage within it. So the lecture will be delivered by Professor Mark Twitter-Jones. Mark is Professor of Cities and Regions at the Bartlett Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis. He's an expert in urban and regional planning, future cities, public engagement, and local democracy, digital planning, and urban history. He's also a former UK government advisor on planning and housing issues, together as being a visiting professor at Berkeley, in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Dublin, and other prestigious institutions. So in his talk today, he will be looking at the history of the concept of uh, urban rooms and explore how urban rooms have been used to involve citizens in engaging with the past, the present, and future of towns and cities, but also how urban rooms can carry lessons for imagining how universities and governments and community groups can come together to critically and creatively forge future propositions for the urban conditions. So before I hand over to Mark, let me re remind you that you can post questions on Slido. The code for this lecture is L-H-L-Autumn, and we will be answering questions at the end of the talk. Thank you, and over to you, Mark. Paola, thanks, you. thanks very much indeed uh, for the introduction. Hello, everyone, and also thank you for the invitation to speak in the UCL East uh, lunch hour lectures as well. Uh, as Paola explained, I'm going to talk a bit about urban rooms and the potential of urban rooms, and I have a slideshow uh, that I'm going to run through, which is a visual feast. It's mainly image-based, and hopefully it will explain to you not only what urban rooms are and where they've come from, but the potential of urban rooms to perform something that universities are starting to learn about, which is outreach and democratic involvement in issues to do with urban change. I'm going to run through an example of something that I was involved with before I rejoined UCL uh, this summer uh, in Newcastle upon Tyne in the north of the UK, where we ran an urban room called Newcastle City Futures uh, some six years ago now. I'm going to highlight how we did it, what we did, but importantly, what happened afterwards, because it was a temporary exhibition and it uh, realized in lots of different activities and outputs that perhaps we didn't foresee at the time. So it's going to learn from stories and the Newcastle experience. I'll just put the slideshow on. That, uh, for those of you who don't know, is uh, the River Tyne in Newcastle, with uh, Newcastle on the right and Gateshead uh, on the left. And it's an architectural feast of a city. And that helps if you're in the city, which is undergoing transformational change, but also has a range of issues and complexity to deal with, then it becomes, if you like, a canvas upon which you can uh, actually achieve uh, quite a lot and a lot of understanding uh, as well. The fundamental question that we're dealing with is how can we understand and shape the long-term future of cities together? 
Now, historically, it was something mm. that professionals like architects and engineers and urbanists and planners had responsibility for. But as we move forward and as our cities become more pluralistic and become more complex, the question is what uh, suitability do our current democratic fora provide for people to talk and get involved with the future of their city? And do we need to find new ways of doing it? So these are the key issues to consider. It's the ways that governments and researchers have traditionally engaged and interacted with citizens and communities through democratic uh, consultation platforms, for example, but whether they are fit for purpose to continue. How do citizens make sense of all the urban change going on around them? And could we do things better? And how can we be more than tokenistic in the way that we engage people about those changes? And critically, can the universities step into this space, uh, being anchored and rooted in distinctive places? Can they put forward new future methods and approaches which help in understanding what's going on and how we can engage? So urban rooms are part of this setup. If you think about how the world is changing and how our urban spaces are changing, there are critical issues complex problems, wicked problems, as planners have traditionally called them, which are, are really cause for concern. There's issues to do with house prices and affordability, issues to do with climate change and extreme weather events, issues to do with economic uh, rejuvenation of places, um, the rise and fall of cities, issues to do with automation and artificial intelligence, concerns about trade, which underpins the wealth of cities and places, issues to do with making places much more pedestrian friendly, walkable, cycling. We know in the context of COVID, these are very important issues. The importance of greening our cities as spaces of well-being as much as nature. And then we have the onset of the digitization and data agenda through smart cities and the way that we interact with each other, which illumine and changes behavior of how cities operate and everyone in them as well. If you think about how cities change, even over short periods of time, then it can be quite bewildering. All that maelstrom of change, all the questions about what's going on and how are we playing a part of it and how we make sense of that. Now, these two cities you'll probably recognize on the left is London from Greenwich Observatory. On the right is Shanghai. And the time period between the top photo and the bottom photo, which were taken from the same vantage points, is just 25 years in each case. So you can see visibly the pace of change that's going on in cities today and that feeling that we need to find new ways perhaps of trying to make sense of this pace of change. But equally, we find new ways uh, that we need to find to engage about these as well. And the key question is, what will the future look like? Uh, I don't mean to look into a crystal ball and imagine and try and predict the future, but there are trends and these might be desirable or they might to some of people might be undesirable futures of their places as well. We try and make sense of where we are today, but we also need to think about where we might be tomorrow as well. And that's not just an issue for governments, big businesses uh, and uh, experts and elites. It's affecting all of us as well. The question is, how do citizens and communities factor into these issues? Can they? What opportunities are they given? 
to have a say about what happens across the entire city rather than individual developments or parcels of land. Now, these issues uh, we might think are quite new. Certainly the range of problems that we're experiencing today might be new, like the digitization agenda and smart cities agenda. But this issue about how to engage people and how people are given the right to express their voices in change go back a long time. In fact, they go back over 100 years to uh, Patrick Geddes. You can see him on the bottom left there, the Scottish biologist, sociologist and planner who put forward the idea of city museums as far back as 1915. He saw city museums as being an essential uh, building, place in each city that would be a space for the public to address civic thought and action, that there would be a chance to take stock of how the city is, uh, it, is forming around people. And it would be partly historic, uh, partly uh, foresight, thinking about the futures and intentional, but it would be a practical way to address these big questions about how the city changes today. And he meant it as a, a concept. He tri trialed these ideas of city museums in lots of places, including in Newcastle in 1915, but they never really came about. What happened as a result of this work is that they morphed into something else. They morphed into people making films about the cities in the 1930s and 1940s, including in the UK, where you had the likes of Professor Sir Patrick Abercrombie, who was Bartlett Professor of Planning in UCL, um, develop plans for the city like London, like Plymouth, uh, develop new models, as you can see there, in uh, London in the top and Plymouth in the middle, and then use film as a way of communicating with people. The reason why they were using visualization and film and, and models of cities is there was no such thing as public consultation in planning and development at this time. In fact, in the UK, planning consultation didn't come in until 1969. So for most of the 20th century, as it developed, there was very little opportunity for the public to have a direct say in what happened in a way that we recognize today. And these means were used, used as a perhaps a more effective way to communicate with audiences. The principles of this city museum was that it would be a space between town and gown, and it would be interdisciplinary. If you think about the way that we lead our lives, urban living, they don't necessarily conform to the labels of degree programs in the university or the names of academic schools. This is about understanding how places are according to people and how they experience them, not necessarily academics and professionals, but you can use academic studies and academic research to inform that thinking as well. So it was about promoting civic consciousness on individual places. You could bring in surveys, uh, historical analysis, geographical analysis, you could think about different ways you can solve urban problems, but it was very much a space to think differently about uh, where that city might be heading. And the idea of a museum was that it would be a teaching center, an exchange of ideas, a Bureau of Municipal Information, Academy of, of, of Civic and Practical Suggestions uh, going forward. So quite ambitious, but obviously the issue of who would pay for these museums, how would they set up and who would own them, uh, were relevant questions of the time. And in fact, they still relevant questions, even when we consider urban rooms today. Now through the 20th century, 
the way that this developed was that individual cities, as they progressed their new development plans for their cities, uh, certainly went for the model idea. So that ranged from Le Corbusier developing his uh, 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 tower blocks in the sky in the top left um, uh, for the future of Paris, through to Manchester, even in the UK, through to Los Angeles, and a very large ambitious model with the Civic Center being put into place there, uh, through to uh, Tokyo in the bottom right, and even Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the top right. And in the middle at the top is Robert Moses, who was chief planner for New York, uh, godlike standing over the model of New York and how that was going to be transformed under his professional advice and professional leadership. And these are the ways to communicate. But the question is, were these intended to get the public and citizens and communities interested, or were they a way of selling the city to uh, inward investors, to politicians and others? In other words, parts of the elite rather than parts of the civic consciousness that perhaps Geddes was referring to. Somewhere in the 20th century, it all went wrong because as planning lost its visionary and visual aspect through film and models and the idea of museums, so urban planning, the tool that we use to bring about and manage urban change, was commodified into systems and institutions and governments. And unfortunately, still the case today, when we talk about planning, we talk about the planning system. And there's a whole commodified way of treating issues and putting them through to planning committees and advising people of how places are going to change on land use terms, not on the basis of the city as a whole, as an experiential learning environment. And so for most of the last 50 years, our questions about urban change, if you want to be involved as a citizen or member of the community, you're expected to play this game of being involved in the system and to learn the right language of the system to make effective representations. And that's no good at all, because that is the language of the elite, it's the language of professionals, and it doesn't necessarily address the way that we can open this up to uh, people from all walks of life. Jane Jacobs uh, uh, was one person who challenged Robert Moses, of course, but also challenged the power of the planners and the language of the planners in excluding people. Uh, and that uh, was not a democratic uh, way of going forward. Equally in the UK, you had uh, lots of cultural and creative figures like John Betjeman in the bottom right there, who took it upon themselves to make a stance against the professionals about how they were shaping cities and places, what was being lost in the process, and provide something that was perhaps more akin to the humanities and the arts interpretation of urban change rather than the science of cities as well. If we fast track to this century, these ideas of city museums have been revisited through Sir Terry Farrell's work on urban rooms. Farrell was commissioned by the UK government in 2013 to undertake a study on uh, architecture and the built environment. And that was published in spring 2014. And interestingly, there are overlaps between what Geddes was talking about 100 years earlier and what Farrell came up with in his scheme. And it lamented about the inadequate methods currently ha we have to engage citizens about discourse about urban change and recommended a new type of venue in the city, an urban room where past, present and future of urban places can be inspected, debated 
and uh, follow through. And it was essentially this idea of the urban room that uh, is, is more akin to Geddes' idea about the integration of several different features, a learning environment, a community space, an exhibition space, and maybe still having a physical, or perhaps these days, a virtual city model to help people understand that complexity of urban change. And the question was, again, who should fund this, even if they are a good idea, and who uh, should own these things, who should have the responsibility of formulated these things. Sad to say that uh, when the report came out, uh, the UK government showed little interest in taking it forward, but that didn't stop a range of other organisations across the UK and overseas in individual towns and cities taking some of the principles and running with them. Place Alliance, which is based in Bartlett School of Planning, uh, it was one activity that was set up on the back of the report. They formed an urban rooms network where lots of different places and people around the UK started to experiment with the idea of having an urban room in their own urban space. And as you can see uh, just about in the bottom left there, this was a diagram from the uh, uh, Farrell report. Farrell suggested that every town and city should have an urban room, but it had to be an exhibition space, a learning or teaching space, a community space, dealing with the past, present and the future as well. And critically, it had to be quite visual, not uh, resort to the legal and policy syntax of urban change systems, which tend to exclude those people who are not uh, used to that sort of language. So with all that going on, in 2013-2014 in Newcastle, where I was a professor there, we decided to do something very similar. This was in advance of the Farrell Report. We, we were not aware of the Farrell Report until it was published, uh, but we were involved in a decision, a group of us in 2013-2014, to think about maybe we could find a novel way to engage the citizens and communities of Newcastle and Gateshead in the Northeast to talk about the future, the long-term future of their city. Newcastle, like most northern cities, has experienced uh, industrial decline. It is a, a wealth architecturally of, of history, going back to Roman times. Uh, it had Hadrian's Wall running through it, which marked the border between Scotland and, and the rest of uh, Britain. Uh, but nevertheless, has experienced mixed fortunes. It is now a, a very successful city, a digital city, one of the growing digital cities in the UK, uh, the, the fastest growing outside London, but it has a range of issues that we need to contend with. So like most cities, it has good fortunes, it has bad fortunes, and it is changing. And if you're a resident of this area, maybe you want to participate in discussion about how that place is changing. And so we decided that maybe the university could be the anchor institution that steps forward and encourages people to think about shaping their own city going forward, outside local government, outside the professionals. It would just be a window up to everyone to think about what was happening in the city and what a long-term desirable future there might be. And that's because in planning today, it's very difficult to think about long-term futures. That aspect of planning has all but been lost now. So it falls to other agencies to think about this and think about things positively as well. The University in Newcastle has a history of civic engagement and civic involvement with the uh, city in which it's located. And so therefore it was a natural reaction to think about this 
in a sort of city museum, urban room sort of way. There are places around the world that have these on a much more ambitious scale, Chicago, Shanghai, Singapore, uh, 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 you know, Chongqing, and even London, as you can see in the uh, bottom right, the, the London Architecture Centre on Store Street, just off Tottenham Court Road. But these are quite ambitious, but there hasn't been this experience of running these or even resourcing something as ambitious as this in many UK places. And so in early 2014, we went about creating our own city museum stroke urban room. And we were gifted an Elizabethan building, which just happened to be empty, uh, under the iconic Tyne Bridge in the heart of the city as the space in which we could do this. We started work in January with the ambition of opening it in May. So four months from start to finish. The place was entirely empty, although it's Elizabethan building, as you can see, the inside underwent some terrible 1970s transformation. Uh, but it was an open space with not much in it. And the five of us who worked on this were, were essentially drawn from the PhD community or recent graduates, actually five of us, only four in that photo. Emma, who's uh, undertaken a PhD in curatorial studies. David, who is uh, a recent graduate architect. Anne Fry, who was a project manager for the pro project, and then Dhruv Sukhu, uh, who is, was the designer of the project, and Dhruv will appear in a later picture as well. And we just started designing it from scratch to think about what we would put on, creating spaces for the public to create their own content, not for us as professionals to dictate the content. We were aware of falling into this trap that if we were just going to say what could be included and couldn't be included in this urban room, then we were as bad as the professionals and politicians and multinationals who were deciding people's fortunes and cities for them. So we wanted to create a co-creation space. And also we wanted to create a forum. So it wasn't just a visual model, photographic, filmic space where people could talk about what was happening in Newcastle, it was also a mean by which people could debate these things as well. And so in that January, we created a new label and a new logo. The critical issue here was it had to be seen to be neutral, which is why we didn't hold it on the university campus. We wanted it in and of the city. And we didn't want to call it after the university because the university people might assume that it was about new campus development, new halls of residence. And so we didn't want to fall into that trap. So we gave it a brand new name and a brand new logo and that we would commit to opening it for three weeks only as a trial, as a pop-up exhibition, every day, seven days a week for uh, uh, six hours. And then in the evening, we would, in that forum space, we would have a series of lectures and presentations that our partners would undertake. We didn't have much money. Basically, we had £40,000 in total to run this, and we had to build the exhibition as well. And most of the money went on building the exhi exhibition. The five of us gave our time for free, and then we set about designing. And we created these uh, postcards. Um, now, these postcards were also turned into posters were, that were put around the city, and we relied on word of mouth to encourage people to come and visit this exhibition based on a key question. What would you do if you were mayor for the day, if you were chief planner, chief architect, what would you do with your own city? And these um, uh, posters and postcards became so iconic, 
is that students started to steal them. Whenever we put them up around the city, they were taken down to put on someone's walls in their halls of residence. Uh, so they became quite iconic because as you can see here, we were showing the city and depicting the city over the very recent past. We decided there's no point in looking at Roman Newcastle and industrial Newcastle. The existing museums and galleries was full of history about that. What was missing from the city about how the recent past had changed, what had happened in people's lifetimes. So the focus of the urban room was very much, say, after 1945. And that included uh, coming to terms with developments and architecture that people, perhaps people detested as much as anything else. Nevertheless, it had happened in their memory. And we wanted to tap into that memory as well. We also produced a little brochure uh, uh, and the idea of the brochure was it would uh, be full of different events. So at the end of the exhibition during the day, in the evening, we would have an event in that forum space. And we produced a program for the entire three and a half weeks. But we can, didn't control the content of those talks. We handed those talks over to partners in the city who are already well-placed in having networks and associations for them to put on their event. All we did was create the space and platform to allow to do it because we wanted to build up trust as a university entity with them to do it. We had these partners. We didn't ask money from any of them. Uh, what we asked though was that they could supply image, images, filmic, resources, things that we could display, even models uh, in some cases, so, so, so that we could raid their collections uh, on a temporary basis. And these were the partners that we, that we gave an evening each to, that they could decide what they did in each evening. And all of them took it to think about not only where they are today, but where they might be tomorrow, for example, as well. These were the sorts of photographs we put up. And as you can see, they're not exactly the picture postcard tourist images of the city. Um, that's what we didn't want. We wanted to put up things of urban change that had happened in the last 50 years. Major public housing programs, uh, the modernization agenda, major road building programs like the Central Motorway, uh, about how the city had been cleaned uh, in, uh, after the war because it, all the buildings had been blackened uh, by industrial uh, output up until that time. So this was tapping into people's memory and consciousness of remembering the motorway being built, of remembering housing estates being built. And people wanting to talk about those changes that they might have experienced. We also included things that were not built, but had been planned. So the unbuilt, and this is not a feature you'd find in most city galleries, proposals that were ambitious about change, but never came apart. Like for example, on the left, the Tyne Deck scheme in 1969, an idea to build a concrete platform over the river, would you believe, in the middle of Newcastle and put uh, art galleries and opera houses in the middle of it. Of course, it didn't happen. The idea for a monorail linking different parts of the region together, running in, in and out of the football stadium in this case uh, as well. Of course, that didn't happen either, but it was about why things don't happen in the way you expect them to, which is the principle that we're used to in urban change, best laid plans and all that. We also then created space to walk around freely. Here's the exhibition just as it was opening on day one. 
with models and with photo boards and explanation panels behind. So people could walk around, not be guided, not be told where they could and couldn't walk, but walk freely and learn hopefully as they went along. And there were spaces for them to give comments and uh, um, uh, talk about what they were seeing uh, as well. We included some artifacts. So this is one of the more famous uh, modernist buildings in Newcastle and Gateshead, uh, Trinity Square car park, also known as the Get Carter car park, where it was used as a film location in the Michael Caine film in 1971. And in the cabinet on the uh, right-hand side, you can see a lump of concrete. And that's all that remains of the Get Carter car park. But if you turned around after looking at that lump of concrete out of the window, across the river, you would see the site of the Get Carter car park. And it became a nice juxtaposition for people to look at, remember the car park, which was loved and loathed in equal measure in the city, with what was there today, what's there today, a Tesco development. And people who are not from a professional background remarking that maybe the car park should still be there compared to what they thought the quality of the current scheme was for. This is Anne Fry. He was very embarrassed about this photograph after the press came in and asked her to pose uh, like this. Uh, but I, I include it because what she's holding is a manhole cover, would you believe? And this was from a major public housing estate in Newcastle called the Killingworth Estate. And you can just make out on that photograph that actually there's a town plan on the manhole cover. This uh, Killingworth estate was home to several thousand people with large monolith blocks of housing. It's demolished now. But when people moved from their terrace housing into these uh, blocks in the 1960s, all the blocks looked the same and people were getting lost. Residents were, were getting lost all the time. So what the council did was put a plan of the housing estate on every manhole cover, drain cover, right across the estate. So we had this in the exhibition and older residents who had gone through that moving experience were came, coming in and saying, oh my goodness, I remember these in place. I remember using them as a kid or trying to find my way back home, for example. So these artifacts, little bits of memory, became useful for people to jog people's memory into telling stories about how they cope with urban change. The diagram, uh, uh, the model on the right is a Farrell uh, museum, uh, Farrell Museum piece, you could say now, although Terry would argue it's a current model because it hasn't been implemented, and that's the Geordie Ramblers. And it's meant as way new walking routes for, through the city from the university. And of course, something colorful will really appeal to people, even in a a physical format. Kids love this model and trying to work out where they were and so on. We had film screenings uh, from the opening of the Metro or the life of the former council leader. We created space to, for students to make their own films that be, could be screened in the space as well. We had audio recordings of residents who had experienced moving from older housing into modern housing in Biker that people could uh, play on uh, uh, iPods. And we included very large scale aerial photographs of change over time. And we put these photographs from different periods of time, probably 12 feet high on one side of a wall so that people could move from photograph to photograph and see exactly how the place has changed. Of course, these days you can do it with visualization techniques very well, but it becomes very evident how the city has changed and what's been lost as well as what's been gained. The talks we had were really successful. 
Um, we left it to the partners to devise what they wanted to do, but usually had 70 to 80 people turning up free events every evening in that space, lect lectures, presentations, panel discussions, and so on, uh, where people could uh, freely interact with the people who make decisions about the future place. We created a children's area because it was important for families and parents kept on saying, we never know what to do with our kids. So this is a great place to bring them. But equally, if kids start to get involved with designing their own future city, so in turn, the parents and grandparents get involved as well. And then we had interactive spaces, and this is very traditional rather than digital, but we asked people about what would you protect in the city and why, and this board was about eight feet high as well, and people could leave post-it notes and little postcards about what they wanted to see, and it covered everything about building the metro out to a uh, uh, you know, a peripheral part of the urban area, about greening the central area, about pedestrianizing, about creating new cycle routes. So we found that if you create the right means by which you encourage people to have a say about the city, they will come forward proactively. There was only one or two comments that were negative, but we had 120 different ideas emerge in that city. City Council initially hated the exhibition because they said, what right do you have to do it? We're the ones that have responsibility. You're not producing a plan, we produce a plan. So you said, yeah, but you could learn so much from what the public think about these things uh, that you might then build them into your formal planning exhibitions. By the end of the third week, second, third week, the venue had become so popular, it was being held for business meetings, uh, unprompted by us, that people wanted that backcloth of the change in city to make uh, deals about new investments, for example. School groups started to turn up unprompted to show the kids about recent history of the city as well. And by the time we closed the exhibition on the 10th of June by the leader of the council, um, then we'd been open 19 days, two and a half thousand people had come in. There were 100 different city ideas, as I said, 24 partnerships had been forged as well. So. We were exhausted, and you can see Drew is second from left in the bottom photograph there, that we, we were certainly exhausted by the end of this time. We had student volunteers, incidentally, to manage the space on a daily basis. Uh, and we thought, thank God for that, it's over. It's been incredibly successful, but uh, it's over. The problem was people's appetite had been whetted. So on the back of the expectation, there were calls for a permanent urban room and that we would go on. And so we had to go on because really the genie had been let out of the bottle, as you say, that there was an expectation that the university wouldn't step back, that we would carry on providing that support, engagement and advocacy role. So then we had to do it virtually uh, rather than physically. So we created a, a website and we started to find that we were in the middle of a quadruple relationship between local government, businesses, citizens and universities. But here what we were seeing was engagement could turn into policy ideas, engagement could turn into new research and teaching for the university, and above all, people wanted to do stuff, not just talk about change, but do stuff themselves. And to do that, back to the urban living issue, we needed to harness the talents right across the university, not just from architecture and planning, but all those people who are doing work about urban change that could be found in so many different schools and centers, they all needed a relevant space here. So then we started to produce alternative brochures about how you can shape 
the city, how you can construct, how you can build, how you can transform, not just, just about we do this already, what, you, what is your view about it, but how would you take it forward? So we transform from a doing, uh, from a looking and listening entity into a doing entity uh, as well. You can't see this in any detail, but it was all the good things about Newcastle and Gateshead, a city of innovation that could be taken forward with more ideas about developing the future. So we carried on engagement work, both online, on social media, in local newspaper articles, in public lectures, and we always went to them. We didn't invite people into the university because for most people, the university is a very daunting place, glass, steel, shiny buildings with lots of brains. So we deliberately went out of our way uh, to go to other people's places to do these talks. And I should say we use social media a lot in order to do that because people use social media to talk about urban change as well. We had partnerships with Seven Stories, the National Center for Children's Books, for example, and using digital and creative methods about encouraging school kids to think about the future according to different age groups. We worked with the Baltic Center for Contemporary Art in Gateshead, putting on an exhibition in 2018 using some of our material that we collected into looking at the Tyne Deck project. And then we supported individual organizations across the city to put, to put on bespoke uh, engagement exercises uh, as part of the Great Exhibition of the North. But we also had to do research. So at the same time as doing all this engagement work, the university was still expecting us to write and to bring in research money and to teach as well. So we produced our own reports, which was summarizing the state of the city and what might happen and how the university could play a role. We produced published papers on many of these, which have been uh, uh, produced since, of course, as well. And then finally, we worked on projects. So on the back of the Metro's experience of having an evening in the exhibition where they talked about their 2030 plans for the city, we then embarked on a research council funded project for them to think about how a new design of train might suit the region. And we created digital platforms for that occur. So 24,000 people got involved in the region in designing the new metro trains. And that was factored into the bid for the new trains to the treasury, which was ultimately successful. Uh, and as you can see some of the images of uh, how we did it digitally. Uh, as well. Uh, we created new technology and new visualization tools for people to communicate and talk and draw about change. And this wasn't just for kids, it was for all age groups as well. That was a separate research project. We helped Northumbria University, the other university, to create new um, visualizations of the city and how it changed. Memoryscapes project. We supported Newcastle University in sensor development about thinking about air quality issues and pedestrian footfall, for example. And then these projects meant that we had to continue the dialogue. So these are what we call the mashup events, Lego mashup events, where 40 reps from 40 different organizations came together to design their own projects collaboratively in partnership and build it out of Lego. Uh, so it was a fun experience. And we had about six or seven of these entities. And something like 75 project ideas came about from just those sessions that we facilitated. 
So all this meant that it was a dream about turning engagement into practical uh, help, but also uh, serious projects. And would you believe in that five or six year period, projects have come about, real world projects have come about. So this idea about what is the housing option for the over 60s in any city going forward, this has morphed into the Future Homes Project, which is digitally enabled, sustainable and energy efficient housing for the life course, which has resulted in 66 new houses having planning permission in the city centre. And it shows you the different partnerships that can be brokered to bring about that change. The future of the commercial area from design charrettes into thinking about the space as a green living creative space to attract footfall uh, in the future. A 20 million pound new plan for Northumberland Street in the heart of the city on the back of that initial engagement work in the exhibition. And then working with a football club to create a community football facility for deprived youngsters, which would also be a digital learning platform, 12 million pound scheme, also now funded and with planning permission. So you can develop things, you can turn engagement ideas into actionable devices. We created a crowdfunding platform and gave it to both councils in Newcastle and Gateshead for them to co-fund community-led projects. And something like 10 projects have been funded in the last two years for that as well. So we grew from 24 organizations in the exhibition to 196 by the end of 2019. And I must admit, if you had said that to us at the time of the exhibition, we'd probably run out of the place screaming because we didn't imagine that we would end up as this successful story, but equally one that was fairly exhausting as well. We engaged 200 organizations, the projects levered in 33 million pounds worth of projects for the region. Uh, we created spaces for 155,000 people to engage on the future of their city and 80 project ideas came about. Now in the final few slides, uh, it has morphed again. And uh, uh, rather than being a pop-up exhibition, Newcastle has plans for a permanent urban room space in that building there, which is right in the heart of the city centre between the university and the civic centre of the city council. And that's quite deliberate. And that is being co-funded by Terry Farrell, who's alumnus of the university, a 12 million pound scheme. But that, if you like, is taking forward the exhibition ideas and Farrell's own urban rooms onto another level altogether. The difference is these days, it has to be partly smart. It has to be partly digital because these days the uh, depiction of the city and urban change is already being collated through lots of visualization platforms. So what the intention there is to find ways that that physical space can take visualizations and digitizations renderings and make them communicable, meaningful to citizens and communities in a bespoke free space. Can't see this in any detail, but it's going back to the Geddes and Farrell idea that one urban room can be multiplicity of different things, an exhibition space, a community space, a research and teaching space, a learning space, and also a partner space to develop new projects as well. I'll finish on this, which is so small, I'm gonna have to put on my glasses to read it. But essentially urban rooms are an effective way to get citizens and communities to talk about urban change. But critically, it has to be on their terms. 
not any owned agency or official terms. The branding of the urban room is very important, as is its position and neutrality. If it's too much associated with any one organization, you will lose the trust of the people that you want to engage with. What, you, what goes into the urban room has to be meaningful and visible to everyone. Lowest common denominator visibility here, not privilege in those who just happen to have letters after their names. It's not about ancient history, but you do need to backcast to 50 to 70 years. What's in people's memory that perhaps they would like to talk about and use that then to forecast forward 50 years. You never talk to audiences or visitors as you would in a lecture, but you listen as I'm doing now. But the whole issue is you listen. People want to talk, you listen. You allow them the space to think and talk themselves. And it's not about dissemination and impact on university terms. It is about listening back into uh, the university. Allow spaces for people to co-create the content themselves. And we had numerous examples of people could put up their own photographs of a change in city. And we collated those through Flickr and Facebook, for example. And if you are successful in this, it will run on its own course, but it might run ahead of you. That's the issue. So if you haven't got the resources and time allocation in place to really meet the expectations, once this is up and running, then it will lead to constant disappointment on the people that you're participating with. If it leads to disappointment, you will lose the reputation going forward. It's not about academic or disciplinary debates. Thank God the world isn't structured and talked about in the way that we do as academics. It is about thinking about interdisciplinarity, but in a way that the people can uh, find a way to use uh, the right language and have roots out. So if people want to do something on the back of what's going on in the urban room, have different ways that those things can be taken forward, not necessarily by the people involved with the urban room, but researchers, teachers, local government, businesses, community groups, there's a wealth of other agencies already around who could take forward perhaps some of these things. It needs to be a usable space. And so you need organizations to want to come in and use it, whether it's community groups, business communities, of course, teaching, but it needs to be beyond the academy, not just the academy itself. And of course, using cutting edge technology and showcasing that technology in a way that gets people motivated, especially young people who then might be motivated in skills development and in careers as well. It is a distinctive space. It's an opportunity for communities to really address and advance their ideas, but it needs to be felt of as something that's genuine, not tokenistic. Remember, an urban room is not an end. It's not a destination. It is a means to achieve other things and other projects and other outcomes. And in that sense, everyone who works in that urban room is an enabler not the expert. And at that point, I've taken up far too much of your time at lunchtime. I'll stop. Thank you very much. And thanks, Paolo. Thank you, Mark. That was uh, truly fascinating. So we've got a few questions posted on Slido. I will uh, read them out for you. So one question is about... Uh, um, so what you've been telling us on your experience at the University of Newcastle. So the question is, in terms of getting the University of Newcastle involved, was it the academics, the students, so PhD or undergraduates, 
or the vice chancellors, uh, so the university administration who advanced it forward, uh, and who was sympathetic to the cause, and who was resistant? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, initially, it was under the patronage of the vice chancellor himself, uh, who encouraged us to get, get, go ahead and go for it. I don't think he had any preconceived ideas about what we would do or how ambitious we would be in going back to him and saying, we can do this and this and this and this. It was just simply create an exhibition uh, and, and, and admittedly showcase the university's work at that time. And because of the mix of experience of, of those of us who, who took forward that idea, I think the view was that it wouldn't just be an exhibition. It would be an exhibition, but it would be so much more as well. Uh, we had to uh, arm twist the vice chancellor then to give us some funding to enable it to happen. Uh, we also went to my head of school uh, separately uh, and asked him for some money. Uh, and played them all off at each other. So he said, well, Vice-Chancellor's put forward 10,000. How about you play putting 10,000 in as well? And then we went to the Dean and asked him for another 10,000. So gradually, rather than saying, here's 40,000, we had multiples of five and 10,000. And we kept on going back to them saying, if we do this as well, you know, it could be so much better, but it'll cost you another 5,000. So by the end of the four months, we had 40,000 pounds to play with, which was just enough. Um, my colleagues in the school, and some of them might be on, <laughs> on screen, um, uh, I think were a bit mystified as to why I was taking time out to do this, because it wasn't really the day job. Uh, it was something more. And I think uh, a lot of us, the five of us, were really exhausted that it had taken over our life by the end of the exhibition, more so than our day job. Um, but they were uh, very supportive and attended lots of events, and they became speakers at some of the events as well. Um, the people who were resistant were not inside the university, as I, as I hinted at before. The people who were quite resistant were, um, I'm sad to say as a planner, but the professional planners in local government who couldn't understand why a non-local government agency would, would take this on and, and do it themselves. And we kept on saying, because the people want to express themselves, but there's no way, no other way they can do this at the moment. Um, I must admit, by the end of the exhibition, they had turned tortoise. They had changed their minds completely as the leader of the council had turned up with his parents and recognized that actually you could see the public appetite for this. Businesses were very keen as well. So by the end of the exhibition, when Nick Forbes, the leader of the council, closed the exhibition formally, um, he surprised us all in the last speech by saying, and this should be made permanent. Uh, and we went, oh my God, no, that's, that's the last thing we want, you know. But um, I think that the initial resistance wasn't inside the university. I think there was concern about the university shouldn't be funding this in perpetuity, that it was a means and end, and maybe other agencies could step in here. But of course, now with the permanent Farrell Center on the cards, the university is co-funding that uh, and seeing it as a free space going forward as well. So there's a resource and budget responsibility which has fallen on the university there. Thank you, Mark. As you have um, uh, touched on the responsibility of universities, there is a question about uh, the civic role of universities in cities. And so can you tell us more about this, in particular in the context of London, which is so large, with 32 different boroughs plus the city of London, so each facing different challenges. Mm -hmm. 
It, it, that, that's a very good question as well. Newcastle University had a history and does have a history of being a civic university. It is of the place, it is of, it's in the middle of the urban area, a bit like universities in London, uh, mostly. And it has a history of, um, if you like, giving something back to the place. Uh, so the relationship between the academics, researchers and teaching staff, the student community and uh, the city is very, very close. In fact, the university is the largest employer there um, as well. So the idea about the urban room being part of the civic consciousness of the university was always natural. It was, it was a, a close relationship that perhaps other universities uh, have lacked uh, over time. In London, it's a little bit more difficult, mainly because of the size of London. So you, you couldn't necessarily repeat that Newcastle experience on a London-wide basis, just because of the size, the complexity of London, the different local authority areas as well. But you can certainly split up London into distinct areas. And Abercrombie's plan for London in 1943 talked about London as, a as, as centers of communities, lots of different communities. Uh, and you can therefore play on that in thinking about an urban room which addressed some aspects of uh, parts of London uh, with selective agencies could work. So something like UCL East, which is fixed in the East End, fixed on the Olympic Park and Queen Elizabeth Park, if that started to draw boundaries around it, they'll recommend that. But if it wanted to look uh, about what its lines of responsibility and extent would be, then I would be thinking about concentrating on the areas around the Queen Elizabeth Park, at least initially, and seeing where it goes. Partly because you have London Architecture Centre right in the middle of the West End, which actually is doing uh, you know, many of the activities uh, anyway, uh, to, to, to some extent, and there are other agencies as well. So you, you don't want to replicate or duplicate uh, some of the good work that's already there. So it might be best geographically uh, and politically being not ambitious initially and just seeing who comes into you and then pick, picking up those partnerships and then developing um, activities on the basis of that. But don't start too broadly, start modestly and then see who expresses an interest because those are people you want to um, you know, be, be, be very friendly with. Thank you, Mark. And one more question. It's, um, you mentioned that you had a place for children in Newcastle which was helpful to families. Did that also enable and encourage genuine, so non-tokenistic, participation from children about the topics discussed in the urban room? Yeah, we, we designated the corner of the room as a, a play space, if you like. So we dumped a load of Lego there, uh, play mats, uh, things like that, even wooden blocks, and people could play around with them depending if, you know, on, on what they wanted to do themselves. In, in some cases, it became almost like a crash where the parents left their kids there while they toured the exhibition themselves. In other cases, we had organized activities, usually on a Sunday, uh, Sunday after Saturday and Sunday, and we had three different partners who came in uh, for those activities, depending on age group. So we had a soundscape guy who came in and encouraged people to play different instruments uh, representative of the sounds of the city. Um, and that went, went very well. We had, um, that was for a mid-range group. We had um, drawing uh, activity work um, that uh, nursery base, if you like, that 
uh, an artist used to come in and, and work on. We had a, a, an archaeologist that used to come in and talk about digging up the city and what they would find and imagine all sorts of things. And then we had a slightly older one for digitization and developing digital skills because young people do have digital skills more like us old fogies. Um, so we, we played around with, with those notions as well. Uh, it, some of those morphed into more permanent relationships between my colleagues in the university and, and elsewhere. So one of my colleagues in planning, Teresa Strachan, uh, was already working on um, a uh, undergraduate uh, project with students and schools in the region uh, called Yes Planning to devise a planning tool to take into schools and that developed much further on the basis of that. So, so I meant earlier about finding routes out, have these things, if they're successful, it works, but you want to continue the partnership activities and there's an appetite on the part of people to continue to get involved. You don't have to do that yourself. I wasn't skilled to do that anyway, but you know people in the university and around the city who could. So you want to find these channels of pathways to encourage it to happen elsewhere beyond the physical space uh, because that will be an enduring partnership. So many of these things were taken forward and the youth participation developed a life of its own in, in interacting in the city. They set up a youth council, uh, for example, as well. So there are lots of different ways that perhaps some of the activities, the exhibition are no longer happening, but the legacy of them have morphed into something else. Thank you. So one final question, I guess. We've got a couple of minutes left. So you have described the urban rooms as being very much physical spaces for people to come together. Do you see the role of the urban rooms changing in future in light of the new digital developments happening? I, I think it's still important, COVID depending, to have physical face-to-face, -face, socially distance face-to-face -face contact with people. Um, that is very important. But uh, in some cities, it's simply not possible to fund or find, you know, a suitable place and space to be able to house that and then incorporate everything like large models in, into that space. So going forward, there'll be a mixture of the physical interaction, but also the virtual communication and dissemination and learning as well. And it makes sense, you know, parts of the university, like my own school, CASA, produce an incredible visualizations of how London is moving or changing, then you want to showcase it. And it might be better showcasing it on screens or interactive platforms uh, or through augmented reality, all sorts of things. And the content of that is really interesting, but the means by which it's happening is also interesting. So people might be interested in the content, they might be interested in how it happens, not just what is happening. And so therefore it becomes an extension of a learning space, but also a skills development space for people. So I think going forward, if, this, if the city is as much smart as it is social, then you need to employ a range of different devices and methods which reflect the era that we're in as well. Fantastic, thank you, Mark. And it's been really inspirational to, to listening to you. And I'm sorry that we will have to stop uh, now. Um, the next UCList um, lunch hour lecture will be on the 3rd of December, when we will be marking the International Day on People with Disabilities with Professor Kathy Holloway, who is the Director of the Global Disability Innovation Hub. 
So do join us then. But before that, the next UCL lunch hour lecture will be on the 19th of November, so this Thursday, and it will be about maintaining translational identities during COVID-19. So thank you everyone for being with us today and goodbye.